0: By June 1944, after five years of fighting, the winds of war had changed. The German High Command were bracing themselves for the invasion of a liberating Allied force on mainland Europe. The man responsible for Operation Neptune, now better known as D-Day, was Kansas native Dwight Eisenhower. On the 5th of June, he distributed orders to his troops. Soldiers, sailors and airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Force,
1: you are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you.
0: D-Day proved to be not just a turning point in World War II, but also a pivotal moment in the life and career of Dwight Eisenhower. Who's regarded as one of America's greatest military heroes and the most popular presidents. In this episode, I explore the life of Eisenhower, his transition from military leader to president, and his enduring legacy. Eisenhower's meticulous planning also included preparations for the possibility that Operation Neptune could fail. He wrote a message titled in case of failure, which was to be broadcast if the invasion proved unsuccessful. In the message, he absolved his troops of any responsibility and said the failure, had it come to pass, was entirely his. The original handwritten note, thankfully, was unneeded, but it survives today, and it may surprise you to learn that it's situated along the I-70 corridor, often referred to as flyover country, that mainly consists of farmland, and fills the 540 mile expanse between Topeka, Kansas, and Denver, Colorado. The reason it's housed there, specifically in the historic town of Abilene, is that while Eisenhower was born in Texas, from the age of two, he called Abilene, Kansas, home. The city now hosts a campus that includes his childhood home, his tomb, the Eisenhower Presidential Library, and a museum. I recently had the opportunity to speak with Dawn Hammett, director of the Eisenhower Presidential Library and Museum. I was surprised to learn that the museum predates the library.
2: When Eisenhower's mom was alive, she lived in this house in this location right here. People would stop by and knock on the door and visit with her. And after she passed away, some of the local community members created the Eisenhower Foundation, and that was the nonprofit entity that the family gave the house to. So the family gave the house to the Eisenhower Foundation, and at that time they opened it to the public, and people would stop by much like they did when Ida was alive. So that same Eisenhower Foundation went back to then General Eisenhower and said, we would like to build a museum to honor you. And I am paraphrasing greatly, but General Eisenhower said, if you build a museum for all of the service members, then I will support it. I don't want it to be in my honor only. So they began building a museum prior to him even running for president. And then once he became president, they decided that they needed to add on to the building, expand the mission, And it also became a presidential museum as well. As the president at that time, he owned his documents outright, and he could do whatever he wanted with them. And he decided that if the Eisenhower Foundation could provide an appropriate repository, that he would donate all of his documents here. The library building was built, the documents were donated, and then it was turned over to the National Archives and Records Administration. So we've been under the National Archives and Records Administration for decades now.
0: So in terms of his records, how accessible are they to the public?
2: The documents that are part of our holdings, by and large, are open and available to the public. Now, what does that mean? We can't just have people rifling through the files. You do have to make an appointment. You do need to sort of schedule what it is you want to research or what you want to look at. But anyone is allowed to come in and do that. We have approximately 26 million pieces of paper. We have over 300,000 photographs. I can't even tell you how many feet of film we have. Our holdings are quite extensive. And those numbers didn't include the 60 to 70,000 museum objects that we also have.
0: Aside from his documents, were these bestowed from Eisenhower himself or Did you seek out uh, relic from other people around the
1: country?
2: So Eisenhower's personal papers that he decided needed to be here at the library were deeded over to the library. After Eisenhower passed away, a lot of his estate went to his son, John, as well as his wife. And then part of John's estate also came to the library. So we're still getting things from the family as they're going through stuff as well. We also have other objects and documents that were donated to the library from other members of the cabinet, other military officers that were in his command. We also have objects from just general soldiers and service members of the time period. In fact, five years ago, we got in a collection of letters that an army service member wrote home to his mom while he was serving in Europe, along with the little photographs from his service in Europe. So we're still getting collections that tell another piece of the story.
0: After World War II, President Truman, faced with falling popularity ratings, tried to persuade Eisenhower to run for president as a Democrat. It's reported that Ike, as he became known, initially rebuffed these approaches, citing the separation of the military and the civilian government. But ultimately, he did end up running for office, but As a Republican, I was curious as to how the war hero made this transition into politics. And for answers, I turned to an expert, Professor Benjamin P. Green, who earned his PhD at Stanford and now teaches history at Bowling Green University in Ohio. He's also the author of Eisenhower, Science Advice, and the Nuclear Test Ban Debate, 1945 1963.
1: He's clearly an ambitious individual in his post-war positions as what would become the Joint Chiefs of Staff and his positions as the Supreme Commander of NATO. I think he had a sense that those who may receive the nomination were dangerously opposed to views that he did not think were correct. Either they were going to be spending the nation into oblivion to implement Truman's version of containment and, and the costly war in Korea or they would be more of the Taft uh, isolationist wing of the Republican Party. And so I think he became convinced that if he didn't become involved... A lot of the national defense strategies that he had devoted much of his post-war time to would not be realized. And those that wanted him to run were very capable in, in cultivating this idea that, you know, Ike, if you don't run, look who the alternatives are and think about where this may lead American national security strategy. And so I think it was a combination of their careful courtship, but also his own supreme confidence that he was the best one to manage America's uh, national security strategy during a, an increasingly perilous time, you know, all of this coincided with the war in Korea that had become increasingly unpopular. You know, In American history, we think of the Vietnam War, of, of course, as being the most divisive. But Korea really brought down Truman's presidency. He could have run in 1952 if he had wanted to, but it had become a, a costly stalemate and uh, increasingly unpopular with the american people this was something that americans thought that eisenhower if he was the great victor of the second world war in the european theater at least from the western front he's somebody that could bring the war to a conclusion in korea in a way that might be better managed than some of the more reckless ideas of douglas macarthur
0: to that point in terms of talking about the end of the war obviously eisenhower was in europe but in japan We used the atomic bomb and ultimately that led Japan to surrender. But I've read conflicting reports in terms of Eisenhower's view on the use of the atomic bombs. I know in the 1960s, he was quoted as saying that it was something that we didn't need to do. The Japanese were going to surrender anyway. At the time it happened, I've heard conflicting reports that either he didn't really comment on it or he was opposed to it. Do you have any insight into how he viewed the use of atomic bomb at the time?
1: Historians continue to debate questions such as when, how, and why he thought about nuclear weapons. The case of Hiroshima is an example of this, and the challenge of trying to see when Eisenhower made these quotes and how they change over time. What's curious about Hiroshima is the recollections we have just from his own memoirs, not from some contemporary discussions, are that he had a brief discussion with Secretary of War Henry Stimson in Germany in in August of 1945, where Stimson told Eisenhower about the impending use of the atomic bomb. Well, Eisenhower in his 1948 memoirs recalls this conversation and it's just expressing some unease about if the U.S. should use it or not. Not very firmly stated. He was uncomfortable with the thought, and, and he hoped and we'd find a way that it did not have to be used. What's curious is you mentioned that Eisenhower changed his views on this in his presidential memoirs written in 1963. And there, rather than expressing a hope we would never have to use it, in his 1963 memoirs, he says he voiced to Stimson, my grave misgivings, first on the basis of my belief that Japan was already defeated and that the dropping of the bomb was completely unnecessary. And secondly, because I thought that our country should avoid shocking world opinion by the use of a weapon whose employment was, I thought, no longer mandatory as a measure to save American lives. It was my belief that Japan was, at that very moment, seeking some way to surrender with a minimum loss of faith. So if you look closely at the difference between these two accounts, one that he wrote in 1948 and one that he wrote in 1963, it's curious that his opposition is much more assertive in the later recollection. And the later recollection, he challenges the military necessity of its use, and he contends that he knew Japan was on the verge of surrender. Well, he didn't provide himself that foreknowledge when he wrote about this in 1948. So as historians, you have to be very careful and think about this. How is it that memory becomes sharper and more pungent 15 years later rather than less clear and less vivid. In the interim period of 15 years, Henry Stimson had passed away. Is it that he didn't want to throw criticism on Stimson for not following his advice? What's the possible explanation here? My own view is that you need to consider carefully how Eisenhower's own views of nuclear warfare changed between 1948 and 1963. Eisenhower, in my view, was someone who hoped that atomic weapons would not be used But he didn't see a huge qualitative difference in the first atomic bombs that were used in Hiroshima and Nagasaki from conventional warfare. As we find out through time, privately, he's almost looking for targets to use atomic bombs in Korea. He may have issued some veiled atomic threats to China to reach the armistice in the Korean War. If you consider what's happened in terms of technology from 1948 to 1963, Eisenhower's qualitative understanding of what becomes nuclear war as opposed to atomic war delivered by intercontinental ballistic missiles has changed significantly. The U.S. atomic arsenal was about 1,800 nuclear warheads. The Soviet Union had about 120. By the end of Eisenhower's presidency, the U.S. has almost 19,000 nuclear weapons. The Soviet Union has about 1,800. But the magnitude of devastation And the powerfulness of those weapons has changed significantly. We also have, as you've talked about in an earlier podcast, the space race and the launch of Sputnik in 1957, in this idea that it's no longer just atomic weapons delivered by Strategic bombers. Now we're talking about intercontinental ballistic missiles that could deliver nuclear warheads. And so in my view, Eisenhower, as he stated in some of his press conferences, threatening China with the use of atomic weapons and saying he would use them as a bullet or anything else in the nation's arsenal in the crisis in, over the Taiwan Straits, I think he genuinely believed that. But a few years later, with the advent and the Soviet Union acquiring thermonuclear weapons and the advances they're making in their technology, by the end of his presidency, his views on nuclear warfare had fundamentally changed. And that's what then leads into his farewell address, which, of course, is most famous for his warnings against the rise of a military-industrial complex.
0: A vital element in keeping the peace is our military establishment. Our arms must be mighty, ready for instant action, so that no potential aggressor may be tempted to risk his own destruction. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists
1: and will persist, We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. But I think there's actually three critical parts within his farewell address that have been the other two have largely been overshadowed by the first. The first part of this is really this disappointment at disarmament and this fears of war. Eisenhower in his farewell address says disarmament with mutual honor and confidence is a continuing imperative. Because this need is so sharp and apparent, I confess that I laid down my official responsibilities in this field with a definite sense of disappointment. As one who has witnessed the horror and the lingering sadness of war... As one who knows that another war could utterly destroy this civilization, which has been so slowly and painfully built over thousands of years, I wish I could say tonight that a lasting peace is in sight. After lamenting the lack of progress on disarmament and fears of war, he then talks about the rise of the military-industrial complex, and his second warning is about the fear that our national security strategy could be captive to the scientific technological elite. In my reading of his farewell address, it is less a cautionary warning to his successors and in some ways an admission of his failings, of his failings to achieve disarmament, something that he thought so important, and those that frustrated his effort. I believe that what he becomes to call the military-industrial complex and the scientific-necrological elite, those who were the physicists of the nuclear weapons labs, Edward Teller, and the so-called father of the hydrogen bomb, who some say Dr. Strangelove character has been built upon. These were the ones that frustrated his efforts to achieve the first nuclear arms control agreement, the nuclear test ban agreement, something that Eisenhower initiates negotiations with. He declares a unilateral moratorium on atmospheric testing, begins the negotiations that he ultimately will be successful with his successor, John F. Kennedy, who will reach the agreement with the Soviet Union for the world's first nuclear arms control agreement, the limited test ban treaty of of 1963.
0: After the war, France were trying to develop their own nuclear program. And for a while, from what I understand, Britain and the US were working together. But then that came to an end. He didn't authorize information sharing with France. The current situation now we think in terms of NATO and Europe and America being entwined. At that point in time, do you think he was reluctant to help the French or other nations because there wasn't that level of trust with them as allies? Or do you think he was more concerned about letting the genie out of the bottle, as it were, and letting a whole multitude of countries have these incredibly dangerous weapons?
1: Well, he he certainly feared proliferation. He felt very confident with the alliance with the Brits. In this case, he was stifled more by Congress, and he worked with Congress to try to amend the Atomic Energy Act to provide even more nuclear sharing with the Brits. And so it was more congressional opinion that halted that. And so knowing that Congress had stifled what he had wanted to do, more nuclear sharing with Great Britain, it was probably politically unparalleled infeasible to do that increased sharing with France. But that also, it fits Eisenhower's inclinations anyway. He had a negative perception of French military skills based upon the Second World War. He didn't get along well with de Gaulle. He didn't have a whole lot of respect for France. He wouldn't have wanted to support France's nuclear program anyway, but the partisan politics were deeply aligned with him.
0: I've read conflicting reports on Eisenhower, too, in terms of whether or not he was prepared to use nuclear weapons. Because, obviously, he reduced the conventional military, spent a lot of money on nuclear weapons. But do you think that he actually thought those were usable, or was he just trying to scare the Soviet Union, China, and other potential adversaries with this overwhelming force... Realising, hopefully, if they're rational actors, that they would never actually push the US to use them, but the threat of them would ultimately prevent war.
1: Eisenhower certainly was fiscally conservative. He believed in balancing the budget. He worked on war plans throughout the 1920s and the 1930s. And and in that period, Eisenhower believed in what some have called the Detroit deterrent, this idea that the United States didn't need to be on a permanent war footing in terms of conventional weapons. If a crisis emerged the U.S. could turn and convert its civilian production capacity and build up for a war. Well, he began to believe that in the nuclear age, there was no time to build up and then to transform an economy. So part of this is his fiscal conservatism. He, He needed to have a means of deterrence, but without the huge budget that a large standing army on a permanent war footing could provide. There's this very arresting discussion or exchange of memoranda that he has in 1956 with John Foster Dulles, shortly after the Soviet Union detonates their first atomic bomb. Eisenhower says, we may owe it to future generations to initiate war at the most propitious moment. Otherwise, we may spend ourselves in, in oblivion along those lines. It's very arresting when when you read these declassified documents and see him. Is Eisenhower actually thinking about preventive war and what is going on here? And shortly after that, there's evidence that the CIA had been asked shortly after that comment to assess how long it'll be before the Soviet Union develops the capability to send atomic weapons at the United States. But by and large, Eisenhower's Initial reaction here. In my view, it's nothing that he seriously considered preventive war, but it does show the degree to which he's concerned about these fiscal issues and spending. For him, the Cold War was going to endure for a decade. For Truman, the Truman administration's security assessment was that the United States faced a year of maximum peril in 1954 and the U.S. needed to accelerate. And this all occurs in a transformation after 1949, when China falls to communism, when the Soviet Union detonates their first atomic bomb, and the war in Korea breaks out. And so Truman has this massive buildup of conventional weapons and nuclear weapons. Weisenhower comes in and says, this is not sustainable. The U.S. cannot afford this over an enduring Cold War. What happens out of these discussions and his reactions about we either have to launch preventive war or we're going to have some sort of police state or a garrison state if we need to be permanently mobilized. That then leads to this new look strategy where he is emphasizing nuclear deterrence. The challenge, as you touched upon before, is is if you rely upon deterrence as your national security strategy, you have to signal a willingness to use it. That's part of the reason why many of the physicists are saying you need to continue to test nuclear weapons. You have to show that the U.S. is maintaining its edge here. You have to conduct rehearsal exercises at the Nevada test site where U.S. service members are assaulting through a mushroom cloud as part of a tactical drill and, and some of these just horrific images that, of course, you know caused generations of genetic mutations and other things for those who participated in the downwinders that did. But at any rate, you know, all of these things are tied together because he does believe that you really have to make your bluff look stronger by showing the capability and the willingness to go to the brink. So that's why, to try to answer those counterfactuals, would Eisenhower have actually used these weapons if his bluff had been called? There's no way to, to answer that, of course. Uh, one really insightful comment came in a historical conference in the 1990s where a historian was trying to bait it and parse out all of these and say, is this skill or is this luck? Attending that conference was retired General Andrew Goodpaster, who was Eisenhower's uh, assistant in the White House and wrote many of the memoranda of conversations of these then top secret meetings. And General Goodpaster went up to the historian and said, you know, was it skill or was it luck? Actually, it was a little bit of both. You know, that's the closest that we have to first hand about what would he have done if his bluff had been called in some of these points. And uh, even Goodpaster, who probably knew him best, did not know how things could have turned out in some of those Cold War crises.
0: On a personal level, Eisenhower went from being the commander of Allied forces at D-Day, who, through his situation in that role, was obviously allied with the Soviet's who at that point in time were our allies. But then a few years later, suddenly the game has changed and the Soviets are in this adversarial relationship with the U.S. He later pulled people out of Korea. And so in that respect, you could maybe portray him as somewhat of an isolationist. But at the same time... He was also active in other arenas in seeming to tackle communism. So how would you describe his view on the United States role in terms of international relations with focus on trying to keep the peace?
1: A challenge that Eisenhower confronted is the process of decolonization throughout the world. By the time... Eisenhower took office in 1953, the main battle lines of the Cold War had shifted. The Iron Curtain was there. NATO existed. The Warsaw Pact existed. Things were pretty static in Europe, of course, with the exceptions of the East Berlin uprising in, in fifty three and, and in Poland and in Hungary in 1956. And there was a brief flirtation where Secretary of State Dulles talked about rollback instead of containment. But Eisenhower never really, he supported Dulles, but he wasn't as supportive of rollback as Dulles was. And so for Eisenhower, it was containment and it it was trying not to lose additional countries to communism. He learned some of the political lessons of his predecessor, Truman, who, who was charged with losing China to communism. The Republicans, you know, skewered Truman for doing that. So Eisenhower politically had to find a way to not lose other nations to communism he used a variety of techniques, even though he emphasizes nuclear deterrence. That doesn't really work in wars of national liberation and in decolonialization areas. So he uses the CIA to help overthrow Musa Day in in Iran and Arbenz in Guatemala. He uses covert operations in Indonesia and in the Congo to, to less effect. But he certainly is convinced to try to arrest the spread of communist movements. And it's challenging to, to parse through the documents on whether Eisenhower sees those as genuine threats or whether he's acting more out of domestic political imperatives. He has, certainly has concerns about communism, but I think in terms of his directions with the Soviet Union, he believes that they're rational actors and that as long as the U.S. had a preponderance of power, they could be deterred by that. And as long as the U.S. maintained its strategic superiority, China and other aggression in Asia could be deterred by nuclear threats as well. It becomes one of these issues and this interpretive challenges of assessing the effectiveness of this program. Were some of these threats uh, carefully calculated and shrewd, or were they? Reckless and is the world lucky that nobody called Eisenhower's bluffs? Because if they did, Eisenhower would have to either back down and not act and suffer a humiliating retreat, or he would have to actually use atomic weapons for a place that many would argue is strategically insignificant and uh, would bring the condemnation of the world to do so. Challenging interpretations on the extent to which he issued threats to China, both over Korea and in the shelling of the islands Kimoy and Matsu off of Taiwan.
0: Eisenhower, as a general and as a war commander, we hadn't really had somebody of that standing in the military become the president for 100 years or so before that. In terms of his legacy, since we haven't had another figure like that, and frankly, in recent elections, we've had a lot of Presidents who didn't serve at all in any capacity do you think in some way shape or form that there's a connection there to Eisenhower where people view him as a military old-fashioned type figure and now we've got more of a divide between the military and civilian population or is it just that we haven't had a big conflict like that that could propel somebody to that sort of status
1: i think a lot of it is is just the nature of the second world war i mean it was seen universally as the good war the necessary war the conclusion of the war in europe was satisfying without any debates about use of atomic weapons or other thing and so if you consider the wars that came thereafter they've all been controversial and none of them with the exception of the gulf war 91 has ended up in a good way in, in a positive light where the Supreme General there has been almost universally admired. I mean, you could argue that Powell and Schwarzkopf in Desert Shield, Desert Storm came close to that, but that wasn't a war that mobilized American society. Wars that came thereafter were inconclusive and they were controversial. I don't think The nation would have wanted to celebrate a leader of any of those subsequent wars. I do also think that Eisenhower he's less threatening as a military leader because of his background and where he came from. He's not like MacArthur, who grew up in a military family and had this elitist view of things. You know, Eisenhower very carefully cultivated the boy from Abilene, who is not from a military background, somebody who was passed over for promotion several times and had this very slow-moving career, as many did. Between the First and the Second World War. And so he didn't appear as somebody with extremely overweening ambition and somebody who is, who is very militaristic. That's an image that I think he helped carefully cultivate. But I think a lot of it is just the times and the nature of America's conflict since then and the controversial nature and the messy conclusions and unsatisfying conclusions of the war since. There just hasn't been one that has provided a unifying feeling and a successful figure that can match the stature that Eisenhower did with his service in the European theatre after World War II.
0: As a historian, I visited many of the presidential libraries. And while interesting, many of them are fairly sterile, more suited to political science students than the general public. But Eisenhower's museum complex in Abilene is entirely different. To quote West Side Story, with both his childhood home and his burial place there, it has the womb-to-tomb story of Ike. Moreover, as a war hero, Ike follows in the tradition the likes of Julius Caesar and Napoleon, fierce generals who became leaders, although in his case he was much more benevolent. I was curious as to how popular the museum was, a question I put to Dawn Hammett. In terms of volume of visitors, obviously pandemic would have thrown it off the last few years. Absolutely. What kind of volume of visitors do you get?
2: The Eisenhower Presidential Library is in the top three or four of the presidential libraries in terms of research visitors. We can get 600 to 800 research visitors a year. These are international as well. These range from high school students, college students, military officers, people who are writing books, anything. The Eisenhower Presidential Library, we get 120 to 150,000 museum guests per year. On top of that, we have students, school groups that come on top of that number. So the number really depends on exactly who it is you want to count.
0: Abilene, in relative terms, is a fairly small area in a fairly sparsely populated area of a smaller state. As the director there, as you interact with these people coming in, what is it that you think draws them into the Eisenhower one versus, you know, some of the more recent presidential libraries and similar sites that are often in more populous areas?
2: What we typically find is that our museum visitors come in just a couple of buckets. One, of course, is the school groups. And we have a lot of students from Kansas that come and visit every year. We're getting close to 10,000 students per year. That's a lot for the location, as you mentioned. But we also have another group of guests who are military service members and they come here to have some memories, to pay homage to the people that they also served with and then I think our third group right now would be those Americans who lived through that era and they're coming back here to remember the 50s uh, when Eisenhower was the president and it's sort of a nostalgia moment for them.
0: Are there particular items in the museum that are especially popular.
2: We have the D-Day planning table from Suffolk House in southern England. Clearly it was left in England after the war. And then one of President Eisenhower's supporters was in England, saw this table and chairs at the British Dental Association. They were using it as a conference table. This person bought it and shipped it to the White House. And uh, we have the letters between this donor and the president saying, here's the table from Suffolk House and the president saying, thank you for sending this back to me. There's a lot of memories of us sitting at this table. So that's a that's an important piece to me because Eisenhower acknowledged what it was. We also have there's a photograph of Eisenhower talking to the 101st Airborne prior to them leaving for uh, the D-Day invasion. And there's a very iconic photo of Eisenhower standing there. There's a group of paratroopers around him. He has his arm outstretched in a specific way, and he's talking to a soldier who has a number 27 on his chest. Everybody knows this photograph. If you saw this photograph, you would say, yes, I got it. Sometime in the 80s, Wallace Strobel showed up at the library and said, hey, that very iconic photograph with the number 27, that's me. I am that person. Would you like my uniform?
0: As the director of the Eisenhower Museum and Library, obviously every day you're interacting with the general public. Are there certain artifacts there that really appeal to you that you would encourage the public to take a look at?
2: Possibly my favorite object is a lunosphere. It's this silver sphere, and it was given to President Eisenhower From Premier Khrushchev. Premier Khrushchev came and visited the United States, gave Eisenhower this sphere. We're going to make it to the moon first. We're going to toss these on the moon. This is going to splinter. And everywhere where there's one of these pieces of metal is going to be claimed for the Soviet Union. There's three of them in the world. One's in Russia, two are in Kansas. One's at the Cosmosphere in Hutchinson, and one's here. All of that, that there's three, two of them are in Kansas. It's all just amazing.
0: That is special. Now, it's been about four or five years ago since I went to the museum. And I've seen online with your website, you've done some pretty extensive renovations since then.
2: We redid the exhibits. Uh, We were working on it prior to the pandemic. We finished and opened prior to the pandemic. It's absolutely unrecognizable from what you remember right now. We actually gutted the entire museum except for the lobby. So we relaid out all of the exhibits. The exhibits are brand new. They're custom built for this story. We sort of changed the story because we felt like Eisenhower and his lovely bride Mamie could tell their own story. So we added a lot of quotes and audio and video from them talking and them telling their own stories. So we really sort of rethought through the story. We wanted to have it be something that would engage people who didn't remember the Eisenhower administration, and maybe open the conversation to a new generation. It's absolutely different. Well, and one of the things that I really love about this campus is, you know, it's 22 acres, there's multiple buildings, but to me, it's really an encapsulation of Eisenhower's life because he grew up right here. Like he played, this was a neighborhood then, but he played right here. He chose to have a museum right here. He chose to have his document right here, and then he chose to be buried right here. This is, to me, this is just his whole life in Abilene, Kansas.